Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. A happy birthday to my brother. I don't know if he's listening or watching. If he's not, then I guess it was just a good way of telling you all that happens to be my brother's birthday today. But uh, let no one say I don't acknowledge the important moments. I'll uh, send him a text once I get off air, just in case. But I do want to talk today about, we have a lot. Uh, Jamil Jamani is going to be here in just a little bit to talk about how he failed to rise up to Bell Media's expectations of him being the token black man on their flagship radio station in Toronto, and it ended up costing him his job. He's now suing Bell Media, and we will talk to Jamil about that now. He certainly has landed on his feet. He's the president of the Canada Strong and Free Network and is doing fantastic work over there. Also going to talk a little bit later on about the potential return of masks. We're already seeing little bits and pieces of it here. The University of Waterloo has plunged its classrooms back into mask mandate paradise, and we are seeing some health units start to talk about masking, so that'll be something that we need to definitely keep an eye on. It's the only thing that is not covered when there's a mask mandate. You can you know see out of your eyes, and uh, that's about it. And we are also going to talk about the public order emergency Commission. Now, let me say first off, there was a, a bit of an unexpected turn of events today, and I, I'm not in Ottawa, so I, I didn't see it in person, but I, I saw the clip going around just like all of you did, where one of the lawyers who represents the commission, he represents the Public Order Emergency Commission, actually collapsed midway through his examination of the witness. Now, uh, this gentleman, Monsieur Poliquin, uh, is uh, not clear actually what condition he's in right now. The commission has said to protect him and his family or out of respect for him and his family, no details will be released about his health. That is something that we are going to respect. And I mean, obviously, the, these things happen and not often, and, and we hope he's okay and send our thoughts and prayers. But it was a, an interruption in the proceedings. That witness is going to testify tomorrow. And the commission has reconvened, I think as of about an hour ago, but they've done it with a, a different witness. So they've just rearranged the schedule a little bit. But again, when you have something going on like this, this is the uh, inevitable byproduct. Things will come up. You have to work around them. What I'm very interested in is what happened yesterday when a document was put forward to an OPP representative. And this document contained a rough transcript, and more of a summary, I guess, of a call between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier Doug Ford. When it, just to contextualize it here, it was February 9th. So we're talking about five days before the Emergencies Act was invoked. And it was a, a call specifically dealing with the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge, which we know from sworn testimony was not connected to the Ottawa protest in any direct way. It was certainly inspired by and perhaps a copycat of, but it wasn't being it wasn't being quarterbacked or coordinated by Tamara Leach or any of the folks in Ottawa. And they were talking about this, and I, I'm going to let this clip speak to it. This is a lawyer, Alan Honor, with the Democracy Fund, reading the relevant part of this document to uh, the witness from the OPP. You will not have seen this document before, but it's a readout of a conversation between the Prime Minister 
the Premier of Ontario, in the first big paragraph, Premier Ford says, the bigger one for us and the country is the Ambassador Bridge and the state ground there. What I think is we got to stop the spread of these protests. And he goes on to say that the Attorney General is looking at legal ways to give the police more tools. Do you see that? The Prime Minister says, first of all, they're not a legal protest. They're occupying a municipal street and are not legally parked. You shouldn't need more tools, legal tools. They are barricading the Ontario economy. And then later in that paragraph, he says, we got to respond quickly. So that's a little bit interesting. Justin Trudeau, first off, makes a declaration that I'm not sure is rooted in law because no one else has been able to say when this became the case that they're not a legal protest. <laughs> this is the interesting thing. They're occupying a municipal street and are not legally parked. So that is the extent of the convoy's lawlessness. They were not legally parked. So you can just go around and issue a bunch of parking tickets. And I guess that is the extent of the law enforcement required. But what Justin Trudeau said to Premier Doug Ford on this call, PMJT, you can see it if you look at that summary there, that you shouldn't need more tools, legal tools. They are barricading the Ontario economy and doing millions of damage a day. I'm assuming that's millions of dollars of damage a day. Or to discuss the metric yesterday, millions of Disney Plus subscriptions a day and harming people's lives. And this is, I think, incredibly revealing here. So if this was, in fact, the case that Justin Trudeau was telling Doug Ford, you do not need more legal tools. You do not need more than existing laws, existing powers, existing authorities to deal with the Windsor blockade, which was by all accounts, and certainly by economic counts, far more disruptive than the Ottawa protests. Then why was the Emergencies Act invoked five days later? And there's a lot in this exchange that uh, was put forward in evidence yesterday, this readout. It was, I should say, the government put this forward in its disclosure. So this is a, a readout that came, and if you look at the email addresses on it, internally from the Prime Minister's office. And in this discussion, what they're talking about is the fact that Justin Trudeau seems to want Doug Ford to move in and direct police. He, like Justin Trudeau is so used to just directing police operations himself, apparently. He's surprised when Doug Ford says, I can't do that. And I want to read this one line here, if I can find it, where a PDF, which is not a document in this case, it's Premier Doug Ford, says, I'm just as frustrated as you, and if I could direct the police, I would. There is one thing to have a protest in a city, but when you are impacting the economy and costing jobs, it's a problem. PMJT says, are you saying the OPP can't help? Premier Doug Ford, I can't direct them. I can't call them and say, get your asses in there. I don't know if that means we lose our explicit tag, but get your asses in there, or if we have to have the explicit tag, uh, and, and kicking ass. It's up to the OPP. So then Justin Trudeau says, does the mayor have to direct local police? So in this exchange, Trudeau's basically asking which politician is able to direct the police. If not you, is it the Windsor mayor that has to do this. So you can tell there's a bit of an attitude here where Justin Trudeau seems to think that this is a political role and a political responsibility to tell police what to do. 
And the two are commiserating about what seems to be their frustration with the OPP not getting in there and, in Doug Ford's words, kicking ass. And I don't think they mean that in, like, the saying way of just doing a really good job. I think they mean actually going in there and cracking skulls. So this is incredibly important. So I believe wholeheartedly from reading this that Justin Trudeau knows the Emergencies Act was not necessary that he knows the Emergencies Act was not required to deal with what the government wanted to do, which was clear these protests, whether they were in Coots, in Windsor, in Ottawa, in Emerson, Manitoba, in Surrey, in Cornwall. And I think he knows that. I think he wanted to find a way to put police officers more directly under his thumb. Now, technically, when the Emergencies Act came into play, the Ottawa Police Service was still the agency in charge. But we know it got a lot more complicated, the command structure. We had RCMP playing more of a role. We had OPP continuing to play a role. Ottawa Police Service, of course, goes through that change in chief. And it's going to be very interesting to hear what Commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, says when she starts testifying, I believe next week, maybe in two weeks. And it'll be interesting because it sounds like Justin Trudeau believes wholeheartedly that it's the responsibility of politicians to direct police. So I want to know what orders he was giving to or suggestions he was giving to Commissioner Lucky. If he's so baffled that uh, Doug Ford isn't in there telling the OPP what to do and saying, yeah, why don't you go there and why don't you clear that and arrest that person? And, and it's very revealing into the mindset. And I think it's also revealing to the fact that he knows what police have been saying, which is that the Emergencies Act wasn't required. And I want you to juxtapose this line of his. And I'll reiterate it one more time. You shouldn't need, this is quoting Justin Trudeau, you shouldn't need more tools, legal tools. They are barricading the Ontario economy and doing millions of damage a day. Now let's take a look at this montage that uh, my fantastic producer prepared of Justin Trudeau when he's speaking into a microphone and into a camera saying a very different thing about the necessity of the Emergencies Act. Invoking the Emergencies Act has been necessary. Law enforcement agencies relied on it to set up secured areas in downtown Ottawa and at border crossings. Right now, the situation requires additional tools not held by any other federal, provincial, or territorial law. It prevented foreign money from continuing to fund illegal blockades, and it's making sure our borders remain open. It has been the responsible thing to do. From the very beginning, I offered to the Commission uh, to appear at that Commission so that Canadians could understand exactly why we had to do what we did, why we didn't enter into those decisions lightly, but why it was necessary to restore uh, order to Canada. We didn't want to use the Emergencies Act. It's never something to turn to without serious consideration. But after weeks of dangerous, and unlawful activities, after weeks of people being harassed in their neighborhoods and small businesses forced to close, after billions of dollars were stalled in trade, putting people's jobs and livelihoods at risk, after the National War Memorial was desecrated, after evidence of increased ideologically motivated violent extremism activity across the country, after a flood of misinformation and disinformation washed over Canada, including from foreign sources, 
after these illegal blockades and occupations received disturbing amounts of foreign funding to destabilize Canada's democracy, it became clear that local and provincial authorities needed more tools to restore order and keep people safe. Today, in these circumstances, it is now clear that responsible leadership requires us to do this. It's, uh, oh my goodness. So we've gone from, yeah, you don't need it. You have all the powers. There's nothing additional to, this is important. We didn't want to do this. We need to do this. This, I don't want this. This is not my choice. I have to do it. We have to do it because of foreign, I don't even know what they're talking about with foreign misinformation. I think most of the misinformation was coming from Marco Mendicino and Justin Trudeau. All of the evil, scary financing. Yes, because, you know, Gladys Pippins in Wallaceburg, who gave the convoy $10, has been such a nefarious and sinister figure. We must freeze her bank accounts if she gets out of line again or threaten to freeze her bank accounts. And on it goes, this idea that this was necessary, that law enforcement asked for it, when even Justin Trudeau himself in his conversations with Doug Ford was saying something remarkably honest, which it doesn't sound like he was doing in those clips, and saying that you have all of the powers and authorities you need. And no one from the government has yet acknowledged what, tra what changed between that call on February 9th and February 14th, when the Emergencies Act came into play. And quite to the contrary, we do know for a fact from the sworn evidence that there had been progress in negotiations between convoy organizers and the city of Ottawa in that time frame, which Justin Trudeau's office knew about, which Marco Mendicino's office knew about, and Marco Mendicino personally knew about and was being briefed on. So if Justin Trudeau is claiming five days before he invokes the Emergencies Act, four days before he discusses it with his cabinet and the premiers, that it's not necessary, it's almost as if this was a move that the government knew it didn't need to do. But contrary to its claims to the media, it wanted to do. Because they wanted that power to go after people's bank accounts. They wanted the ability to make an example of all of these protesters that had embarrassed the government by bringing this message of freedom a message that was unifying people from across this country, a message that went beyond left and right and actually spoke to people in a very real way, that that message, those people who brought that message, had humiliated the government. And they couldn't stand for that. Justin Trudeau couldn't stand for that. And, and it's a shame. It's a shame that we don't get to see in real time how the government and the cabinet ministers and all of the staffers are responding to this testimony every single day. The testimony that comes out further proves the lack of necessity behind the Emergencies Act. All of these people, police officers, career police officers, well-respected by government and by public and by their peers in law enforcement, are all saying that they aren't backing it up. They aren't backing the government up. The most support government has gotten on this is from police saying, yeah, when they offered it to us, we used it, but we didn't really need it. And I think that's very telling. And, and I also don't think that's the bombshell that the Emergencies Act's defenders think it is. Because it's like if, if you give someone a big you know, Maserati to drive from home to the office, they're going to use it even if they didn't need it, even if they could have made the same trip on a bicycle. Because, well, it's a tool that's been given to them, so you as might as well make use of it. And I think that is so pivotal 
to this because the Emergencies Act is very clear. It can't be something that the government could have dealt with or law enforcement could have dealt with using existing laws. And I, I restate that point almost every time we discuss this inquiry because I think it is paramount for people to understand that. The police incompetence, disagreements, different ideas on how best to do it, these are not grounds under the legislation to invoke the Emergencies Act. These are not laws that are not working. These are perhaps human failings, bureaucratic failings, government shortcomings, sure. But it's not evidence that existing laws are unable to deal with the crisis, whatever the crisis is. And I think more fundamental to that, I'm not even convinced, in fact, I'm convinced that there was no emergency in the first place. And, and I don't mean that just by saying that, well, I personally, Andrew Lawton, don't think uh, bouncy castles are an emergency. I think that the government's legislation guiding this is very clear on what constitutes a public order emergency. And there weren't any of the criteria that the Canadian Security Intelligence Act sets out. There weren't the criteria that the Emergencies Act sets out. So for the most part, we are seeing no emergency to begin with. And I think that beyond that, people need to realize that Justin Trudeau is not going to be able to get away with this if folks are paying attention. And that's the big if. I've said yesterday that there is never going to be satisfaction from people that really don't like Justin Trudeau. There's never going to be satisfaction from people that just think, you know what, he shouldn't have done this, that people that think he should be, I don't know, brought up on charges before the Hague or whatever. I'm not entertaining that. What's going to happen is we will get a clear-cut decision from the commissioner, or not even a decision, a clear-cut report from the commissioner. And that report is going to list all of these things that the commissioner has noted. It may not be satisfactory. It may not come to the conclusion that, yes, the Emergencies Act was right or no, the Emergencies Act was wrong. He doesn't need to make that decision. But even if he says it's unjustified or certainly makes that case without saying it directly, it doesn't result in anything resembling charges. It doesn't result in anything resembling civil liability. It doesn't mean Justin Trudeau is forced out of office. I think he should resign if that is what the decision comes back as. If for no other reason than the standard that he set when he was defending this in the House of Commons. But I think that what's key here for people to realize is that we're, we're starting to see evidence that even the government itself knew this wasn't necessary. From Justin Trudeau point blank telling Doug Ford that to what we also saw last week or two weeks ago in the text messages exchanged between staffers in Trudeau's office and staffers in Marco Mendicino's office saying that we need to just lean into the narrative. They wanted this as a media opportunity, not as a national crisis needing some massive public safety response. So uh, we'll have more of that in the days and weeks ahead. We are on the back half of the commission, but there are still a, a couple of weeks left to go here. I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite uh, topics, which is talk radio. I, I've been a longtime talk radio fan. I really cut my teeth in the media industry doing a, a daily talk radio show. And I know a lot of you who listen to this show used to listen to me on the radio, whether it was in London and Toronto and in Calgary. And I, I thank you very much for that. But the talk radio of today is very different than the talk radio of uh, yesterday and two days ago and several years ago. And I, I say that with a fair bit of sadness because talk radio used to be like the bastion 
of unequivocally irreverent speech, of being able to challenge conventional orthodoxy, being able to have debates, air controversial opinions, not for the sake of controversy, but because they are discussions that need to be had. And it has gotten increasingly woke in Canada. And I, I would say there are a few better able to attest to that than Jamil Giovanni, who hosted a, a fantastic show on Bell Media's News Talk 1010 in Toronto, although his management seemed to want it to be a lot less fantastic. And I want to bring in Jamil to talk about this now, the president of the Canada Strong and Free Network. Jamil, good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. I certainly share your passion for what talk radio used to be. And I mean, it's great we have platforms like yours where we can still have some of these uh, important conversations. Well, we'll blow the minds of our uh, former employers, both of whom uh, fired uh, each of us. But let's talk about this because you hosted a great show on News Talk 1010. You talked about a lot of things. You introduced yourself to a lot of people who didn't know you. And it was fascinating when they fired you. And, and, you know, it was, I'd say there's a bit of a purge going on in radio at the time. Danielle Smith, I know in Alberta, was having some issues around the same time frame, not connected to you or your case, but uh, there, were, there were these changes. And we've started to see a little bit more about this in court documents because you are suing Bell Media for your termination. And the one notable one that I really want to talk about here is this accusation that Bell has made to you that you, who, as I understand it, were the only black man on the station, were insufficiently diverse for them. That's exactly right. It's very confusing exactly what diversity means to a company like Bell, because they say they want people from different backgrounds, but they don't seem to want anyone to actually bring their perspective to their job. So they want to celebrate, oh, this person's from this community, this person has this identity. But then when you want to talk about what's happening in the world, all of a sudden they'd like for everyone to sound the same, which doesn't sound like diversity and inclusion to me. Um, and, and I think one of the key examples of this was around, you know, all the COVID stuff. You know, I, I hosted my show last year when of course COVID was the main thing on the news every single day. And, you know, I, I'm a black man. I come from a community where because of history and because of other reasons, a lot of people were hesitant to get the vaccine. And Bell like wanted me to talk about that if I was willing to deliver the message that they wanted. They wanted me to come on the radio and shame people and hate people and say, you know, mean things about people who wouldn't be vaccinated. And my point of view was like, look, I mean, part of diversity is recognizing people have different life experiences and I'm not gonna attack people who make a different decision, even if it's not the same decision I made. And that was where so much of our conflict came from. And you can see even in the court documents, which I encourage people to check out on my Twitter page, I posted a link to where you can read them yourself. They basically say like, I didn't shill the liberal party's lines on COVID-19, and that's one of the reasons they fired me, which is kind of a mind-blowing thing to say out loud. They say on the record. Like, I was very surprised to read it, to be honest. Yeah, in a way, it was weird, because I, I read your initial filing, and you're making all these claims, which, of course, I should say, haven't been tested in court about why they fired you. And then in their defense, they basically reaffirm everything you accuse them of doing and, and try to put their own spin on it, of course. Like, uh, And one of them, they... they 
say point blank in, in their uh, defense filing here that you were not committed to their uh, diversity and equity and inclusion policies and all of that. And, and some of the other things they included as your alleged transgressions, I, I found ridiculous. Like one of them was you had an interview with an MP, Kathy Wagenthal, who, who didn't tow the government's line on vaccination. And you say you were supposed to be more aggressive or assertive in, in you know, shouting down whatever she was saying. And, and it's like, Kathy Wagenthal, I've interviewed her before. She was offering the unorthodox position. She was challenging the position you could get anywhere else. So the idea that you then need to, you know, silence her or rebut her, I find ridiculous. And I, and again, really a rejection of, of what talk radio used to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, MP Wagenthal is a uh, duly elected member of our parliament. For her to be given an opportunity to share her perspective on an important issue seems like exactly what the media is supposed to do. We're supposed to bring forward perspectives that are influencing public policy, influencing the way politics and government work. And yet Bell seemed to want just one perspective to be allowed on their airwaves, which is just, I mean, as I said, I'm surprised they admitted it. I mean, they behaved that way. They tried to punish me. They certainly conducted themselves like a group of people with a bias toward the Liberal Party. But for them to actually come out and admit it is a whole other story. I mean, I was very surprised. And to your point also, Andrew, about, um, you know, the, the me not sort of complying with diversity. Like, let's be specific about what, what they wanted. These guys put out last November, about a year ago today, they put out a plan that was about segregation, that was about putting together diversity groups that would have meetings based on all the black people get together, all the indigenous people get together, all the white people get together. That's not diversity, that's segregation. That's literally the opposite of diversity. You're telling people that in order to have important conversations about our workplace as employees of Bell, we cannot do that with people who look differently than us. We have to be separated from one another. And I'm I'm against diversity by saying I don't want to be part of that. Like this is nuts. You you know these businesses want to get into the world of micromanaging people's identities. And then when someone, whether you're black, indigenous, a woman, part of the LGBT community, whatever it is, even if you're a white guy, they want to tell you how you're supposed to think about yourself and the political views you're supposed to have. That's not business. That's creepy, weird approach to diversity. And the idea that I was a problematic employee because I thought as an individual, I should be treated with respect. That's nuts. And that's really at the crux of the lawsuit, which is like, our business is allowed to treat people this way. I believe it's against the law and I believe it's illegal. And, you know, we're that's exactly why I'm taking them to court. When you were hired, was there ever a, a sense that you had in your discussions with them, either formally or informally, of, of what they wanted you to be and what they wanted you to say, whether it was a particular position or a particular issue? Or or did, you, did they just look at you and, you know, based on a couple of interviews you'd done and perhaps your book and things you'd written, just assume that they had you figured out and they knew where you were going to go once you you were on air. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think there were a lot of people there who I would say have a very simplistic sense of how to work with people who come from a different background or perspective than them. Um, and so some of those people, like there's one particular manager named in the lawsuit and Bell names her in uh, their statement of defense, Hillary White. 
ironically named, who had a very uh, big problem with with me and was constantly trying to, in my view, intimidate me and try to like force certain perspectives on me. And when I tried to speak up for myself, and you can see the dysfunctional workplace at Bell in other examples, like with Lisa Laflamme, for example, uh, Danielle Graham uh, is another person who's got a lawsuit against Bell over some of these issues. Um, you know, they try to, you know, punish you into submission, into compliance. And I don't think that's actually what a healthy workplace is supposed to be like. So it was very difficult. There was a manager there who did, I think, try to have a genuine, honest understanding of diversity. His name was Mike Ben Dixon, and he was fired uh, a couple months before I was. Um, I don't know exactly why, but I can tell you that when they let him go, you know, it just the, the, the one manager who seemed to have a healthy view on these issues was gone. And all of a sudden, the place just started to fall apart. And that's, you know, and then they blame the employees for that. And it's like, well, maybe management should take some responsibility for some of this dysfunction. Now, it's funny, because in Bell's response, they talk about the diversity issues and the fact that you misgendered Demi Lovato or something. And they, they go on with some of these other things we've discussed. And then they say, oh, yeah, and his ratings were bad. Was that ever something that was brought to you? No. In fact, you know, as I mentioned, I only had one ratings period that I was uh, able to uh, do the show for before uh, I was fired and suspended and all these other things went on. So that one ratings period, they gave me a bonus for because of the, the, the performance of the show. And I actually have an email from my boss saying, congratulations. So the ratings thing is very weird. I mean, the reality is, and as I'm sure you would imagine, you know, ratings for all radio went down during COVID because people weren't commuting to work in their yeah. cars as much. So I think what Bell's trying to do is act like that was sort of my fault as a way to justify the firing. But here's what I would say to you, Andrew, if there was a business reason to let me go, why are they bringing up all these other things? Like, if it was just about business, why couldn't they just say his ratings are bad? We had to let him go. Most people would accept that. And if that were the honest reason that I was fired, I, you know, why, why were we having these arguments? Like they mention all these other things about diversity and Justin Trudeau and Kathy Wagenthal because it wasn't about ratings and that they felt the need to address all these other issues because their case based on ratings is so weak. And you'll even notice, and again, I encourage anyone, you can read Bell's uh, statement of defense in their own words, go on my Twitter page and you'll, and I post it there and you'll read it and see, they actually present no evidence to back up their claim about ratings at all. It's literally, they just say it. There's yeah, no it's quotation. just like a line basically that they yeah. just sort of just throw out there and see if yeah, it's Yeah, there's no quotation. There are no numbers. There's no actual information given. Where do they have information? Well, they've got quotes when it comes to me not defending Justin Trudeau. They've got quotes when it comes to me uh, not taking their position on Demi Lovato and her journey in self-identification. Um, they've got examples for that, but no examples to ratings, right? So it just... It's a very bizarre approach they've taken. And it seems to me, in my personal view, they've underestimated how much Canadians expect media to have some sort of credibility, some uh, objectivity, some effort to be middle of the road. I think a lot of Canadians expect that. I don't think that Bell is offering them that in their media coverage. Radio is a cartoonishly precarious industry. I think like the line when I started out is that you hadn't made it in radio until you had been fired. Like some of those old time uh, radio guys would, 
would, you know, get fired on Monday morning and they'd be somewhere else Tuesday afternoon. And I think stations have the right to put whatever they want on air. And I know you're a, a free market guy, so you'd agree with that as well. Let, let me just ask then, what is the core of your issue? Is it, you know, the fact that they, you know, canceled you for these reasons or, or is it something more fundamental? Yeah, I mean, the core of the issue is they created certain expectations of me as an employee based on my race, based on my the community I come from, based on, you know, the color of my skin or, you know, my, my name, all these things, they created unique expectations on me and then punished me when I didn't meet those expectations. That is, I think, by most uh, uh, definitions, racism. It is racist to say, because of what you look like, you have to do your job a certain way. And when you don't stay within the boundaries we give you, we punish you for being the wrong type of black person. That is what the crux of the issue is for me. As I said before, I do believe that in, in businesses, I do believe in capitalism. A lot of the good things about our country are the result of us embracing free market economics. At the same time, I'm also a believer in uh, people being treated as individuals. I'm, be I'm a believer in equality before the law. And you cannot, whether you're on the left in this case, or you're on the right, whatever the example would be, decide you're gonna treat people differently based on what they look like. And that is fundamentally wrong, in my opinion. And that's why I decided to bring this case forward. I think that we've gotten to this point where we believe liberals and people on the left, like the management at Bell Media, are allowed to get away with racism. And then they accuse everyone else on the other side of being the racist. And I'm saying, no, 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 you guys are the racists. You're treating me differently because of what I look like, because of who my father is, because of where my father comes from. And that's not right. And we're going to deal with that through the court system. You know, this may shock people in this colorblind world, but I'm not black, so I don't have the, uh, you know, the experience of, of being a member of that community. But, I, I, and again, I, I don't even like talking about people in, in terms of communities because people are individuals. And that seems to be the issue they had with you, that you were an individual and that, you know, your community certainly colors and shapes your perspective, but it, it doesn't confine you to one particular perspective. And, and I feel that it's just so laughable that this idea of diversity, this idea of having more voices represented from a variety of backgrounds, which is important, only extends when those voices say certain things. Yeah. And that's exactly the problem. I mean, I have email documentation of Bell encouraging me to talk about vaccine issues in the black community. They brought me on CTV news to talk about the issue. So but they, but they wanted I'm, you to do a PSA, basically. They wanted exactly, you to promote vaccination exactly, to people in the black community. Exactly. But I, as, as you said, Andrew, I'm a human being. So I know that when I take that responsibility on, I have to do that with integrity. And part of doing that with integrity is showing respect to people in my community who have a different point of view. And then when I go on the radio and show respect to people who make a different decision, then I'm being uh, punished for it. Well, you can't, you can't control a person that way. That is fundamentally wrong to say, we're gonna use your race when it's convenient to us. But then when you wanna show respect to people with the same identity as you, we're gonna punish you for it. That is a kind of manipulation that is only possible when you have a business like Bell who thinks that they are so above any kind of moral expectation, any moral standard that they can get away with anything they want. And the reality is, no matter how big and rich you are in this country, no matter how big of a business you are, no matter how much power you have as a Bell executive, you're still beholden to the law. 
And that's exactly why a lawsuit is necessary here. They can't get away with treating people this way. You are taking on the machine, and I couldn't be happier for you, uh, Jamil Giovanni. So thank you for that, and, and best of luck. And just on a purely unrelated topic here, I know you've written in the past about your uh, friendship with J.D. Vance. You went to law school with him at Yale. Any thoughts on uh, his big victory last night in Ohio? You know, I'm just happy for him. Like, I know a lot of the the coverage has sort of pointed to the fact that Republicans did not have the quote-unquote red wave as many expected. A lot of these Senate races and congressional races were more competitive than people thought. But I knew JD's wasn't going to be that competitive because he's been working his butt off. He's been connecting with people in Ohio. He's, a, he's from there. He's got a story that you can read about in his book, Hillbilly Elegy. You can watch the movie on Netflix. People know where he comes from, and he's lived through the issues issues that a lot of people in Ohio want uh, solutions to. So I'm happy for him. I think he's going to be fantastic as a senator. You know, I think of him as my big brother. Like, I, I love the guy. And so nothing but positive vibes for me. I mean, I can't wait to see what he does when he's, uh, you know, actually in the Senate being able to use his voice for good. Well, perhaps you'll be able to get uh, Senator Vance at one of the uh, Canada Strong and Free conferences coming up. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Pull any, pull any clout you can. Uh, Jamil, always a pleasure. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. All right. That is Jamil Giovanni, president of the Canada Strong and Free Network. And again, I should say the uh, documents we were talking about uh, from his court case has not yet been resolved. The allegations have been uh, not tested in court, but they are, as you can read for yourself, in, in many cases, uh, pretty pretty much not refuted, but rather affirmed by Bell in its reply. They're the ones that bring up the fact that he misgendered Demi Lovato by not referring to them as they, or her as she, they, whatever it is. And again, by interviewing Kathy Wagenthalen and insufficiently being critical of Kathy Wagenthal when interviewing her about her views on vaccination. So, uh, you know, it, it was actually a little bit uh, triggering for me as someone who went through this with a uh, mainstream uh, media company working in talk radio and, and finding that this place that used to be the bastion of irreverent commentary was all of a sudden becoming very much narrowed and constrained to something else. So I'm glad to be here at True North. And I think there's a serious point here which is that the legacy media is not the answer. And I think a lot of the times people get really hung up on this belief that, uh, you know what, we can get the newspapers to write about this and get the TV stations to report on this and the radio stations to do this. And, and to some extent you will, because again, these still have influence, they still have audiences, but increasingly people are supplementing their mainstream media consumption with alternative media or getting rid of their mainstream media consumption altogether and focusing almost entirely on independent media. So I, I think it's never been a more influential time for people in alternative media or online media in general. So if you are a part of our True North family here, we thank you so much and would encourage you, if you want us to keep doing this, to uh, financially contribute either with a one-time donation or you can become a monthly subscriber and join our Insiders Club. You can do all that at donate.tnc.news. That does it for me for today. I just want to give a, a very, very special uh, acknowledgement uh, to our uh, veterans out there, uh, those of you who tune in. I, I know that Remembrance Day is about the fallen, but I also think we need to thank the living as well and uh, certainly thank uh, the fallen for their sacrifice. So I'm a couple days early, but I will say lest we forget. Thank you, God bless, and have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.